I'd like to read uh, from 1 Samuel, uh, part of this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning, verses 1 to 11. And we're going to be continuing with this uh, series. I appreciate the messages that Pastor Jim and Pastor Jason and uh, Pastor Steve shared last week as well. It's been fun to listen to those uh, online and uh, CDs. And I want to remind you that those are available if you ever miss a Sunday and you want to continue in the series. Uh, You can do it either way. Pick up a CD here at church or listen online. And it's just a wonderful uh, resource that we have available. So let's listen to what God has to say in this passage of Scripture, beginning at verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. And then he said to the Kenites, Go away and leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. And then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. And he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. And when the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, there are parts of your scripture that are sometimes hard for us to hear, difficult to understand. And Lord, I pray that today you would give me the right words to say, to explain things, that you would help us to hear from your Holy Spirit, and that you would apply this passage to us, help us to understand what it means to be obedient, and just how very, very important that is. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, as we get into this passage, we are going to see that it is the culmination of God's rejection of Saul as king. It was just a few chapters ago that Pastor Jason was speaking from 1 Samuel 8, and he was talking about how God had raised Saul up to be Israel's first king. And he described the unique circumstances in God's call on his life. And then last week, Pastor Steve talked about Saul's disobedience in taking uh, this position of offering a sacrifice to God that was unlawful for him to do. That was the role of the priest or of Samuel to come and to offer that sacrifice. And Saul showed this uh, disobedience at different points in his life and now it comes to a head in chapter 15 where this will lead to Saul's ultimate rejection as king of Israel. 
When I came to this passage this week, I thought of a story in my own life, an experience that kind of puts in perspective maybe what was going on here. When I was a student in high school, I played basketball. I loved it. It was my favorite sport out of all the ones I participated in. But to show you a little bit about how things have changed at that time, uh, I was the center on our team. Now, I'm six foot one. I'm not all that tall to play center in basketball. Kind of gives you a perspective on it. Uh, there are guards today that are taller than I am and uh, play in the front. Uh, well, you know, when I think of that experience, uh, I thought of one student who was a couple years older than me who tried out for the team. And this student's name was Jim, and he was very athletic. I mean, way more athletic than I am. He could run and jump and handle a ball pretty well, and he could shoot. And uh, he had good physical ability. But he had one serious deficiency. And that serious deficiency was he wasn't coachable. He wasn't coachable. He wouldn't listen. He came across as kind of arrogant, thought that he knew better what to do. And he just didn't work well with the other players on the team or with the coach. And it wasn't too far into the season that he just quit the team and left. He had tremendous potential, but he never reached that potential because of this one issue of being teachable. And when I look at Saul, who was anointed as Israel's first king, I mean, here was a man who was gifted with unique abilities. Not only was he tall in stature and kind of stood out from all the rest, but if you look at Saul's life, I mean, he was successful as a military leader. Uh, he had those times of great victory as he led Israel into battle. But he had one serious character flaw. He would not listen, and it cost him the kingdom. And that's what this story is about. It's a story that shows us the serious nature of sin, and it also raises the questions in our mind of what does God expect of leaders in the church? What does God expect of those who are in leadership? And what does He expect of us as followers of Jesus Christ? And if you were to summarize this passage into a short way to remember it, what He expects of all of us, is that we listen and obey. That we listen and obey. Well, we're going to walk through the text, and I want to draw just some uh, application this morning as we go through it section by section. In the first section of Scripture here, we see that partial obedience is disobedience. The passage begins in verse 1 by reminding us of Saul's unique position as king. Samuel comes to him, and he uh, tells him, that I am the one whom God sent to anoint you as king over his people Israel. Saul became a king because the Lord made him king. Saul did not become king because uh, you know, he won this accomplishment or because of his skills or abilities or all of those kind of things. In fact, you know, at the time when God called him, he was out there chasing some donkeys that had gotten away from his father's farm, if you will. And he's out there with the servants and he's going after these donkeys that are escaped and that's kind of it. Kind of a lowly task, isn't it? And God sends Samuel to anoint him and pronounces that he is to be the king of Israel. God did it. Not Saul. 
And secondly, the king, Saul, had to submit to the prophet Samuel. In other words, the king is not above the law of the Lord. He's not above God's word. He does not have that authority to do whatever he thinks he wants to do. The king of Israel is to live his life under the law of God and under the prophet. And so Samuel says to him that I am the one who came to anoint you king. Samuel had this authority over Saul, although there are these times now when Saul will not listen. And thirdly, the people were not Saul's people. They are not his subjects, but they are God's people. And so he is to be this steward. He is to be this one that God has raised up to give leadership, to protect, and to watch over them. Samuel comes to him and says, I want you to listen to this message from the Lord. The one essential requirement for Israel's king was to listen and obey. Samuel comes to him and he brings this message that the time has come when God is going to carry out his judgment on the Amalekites. Now it's hard to read this passage in our context because here is this order that is given that I want you to go and I want you to attack the Amalekites and I want you to destroy them completely. Men, women, children, infants. Cattle, sheep, camels, donkeys. Everything. I want you to destroy them. When we hear that in our context, that sounds like genocide, doesn't it? We need to hear it in the context of what was going on in the Old Testament. It is a reminder to us that God is, again, sovereign over the nations, and he is the judge of all the earth. The Amalekites were a small nomadic tribe that lived south of Israel in the desert region in the Sinai. And when Israel came out in the Exodus and left Egypt and they were going across the Sinai, the Amalekites waylaid them. They attacked them. If you remember in Scripture the story where when Moses raised his arms while Joshua was leading this battle, you know, they, they had victory when his arms were raised when he got tired and they started to sink down, you know, they were losing the battle. And so Aaron and Hur come alongside and hold up his arms so that the battle can continue. God gave them victory. That was the battle against the Amalekites. But God spoke a word at that time and he said to Moses, that the day would come when he would blot out the memory of Amalek forever because of their opposition to God's people. Now God is merciful and he is slow to anger and abounding in love, yet he is also the judge of all the earth. And now some 400 years later that day has come when he is going to carry out his judgment because of their continual disobedience and rebellion and opposition to God's people. Sometimes God's judgment comes in an impersonal way. He used a flood in the days of Noah to destroy those who were disobedient. Sometimes it is personal, as in this case, when he was going to use the Israelites to carry out his judgment. One day in the future, our Lord will return as king and judge, and he will defeat his enemies, and he will protect and provide for his people. So everything was to be destroyed. It was to be given over to the Lord, just like the battle of Jericho. Nothing was to be taken. No plunder for the Israelites. They were to give it all to him. So Saul musters an army, in verse 4, 200,000 strong. 
And Saul warns the Kenites to move out of harm's way because they had assisted Israel in the past. And then Saul attacked the Amalekites and he did everything in a sense that God asked except for two things. He spared their king, Agag, and he spared the best of the livestock. And they took it as plunder, a trophy of war. And in verses 10 and 11, God comes to Samuel and he tells him what has happened. And Samuel hears this word of the Lord that I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and he has not carried out my instructions. God was grieved over Saul's disobedience in these two areas. His heart was turning away from him. And he would not listen and carry out the instructions that God had given. We see in verse 11 that Samuel was troubled. Literally, he was angry. He was angry about these things. And it doesn't say all of what he was angry at. He was probably angry at Saul for his disobedience. He was probably angry because of what it meant for Israel as a nation. He may have even been angry because he was the one who had anointed Saul. And he may have felt a part of that or let down by this one who had so much potential but would not listen. Samuel loved Saul and he would grieve for him and what was happening in his life. Partial obedience is disobedience. It is saying to God that we know better. I mean, here was Saul basically saying, you know, well, why kill some perfectly good livestock when we could have a great feast instead or we could use all of those things? Why do this? I know better. I'm going to do what I think is right. Our thinking can become twisted. A number of years ago, I came across a story that I thought was a really good illustration, and I've actually been waiting for quite a while to use it, and today's the day. You know, as a pastor, there are times, Steve understands this, there's, you just find a good illustration, and it's just waiting for a text, okay? Well, in 1992, there was a man who was arrested for armed robbery in South Dakota in Rapid City. His name was Dennis Lee Curtis. When the police arrested him, they found a curious sheet of paper in his wallet. In his wallet, he had a list of things that were sort of his moral code that he lived by as a robber. And this is what it said. He said, number one, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. Number two, I will only take cash and food stamps, no checks. I will rob only at night, and I will not wear a mask. I will not rob mini-marts or 7-Eleven stores. Again, I, I don't know why. It'd be interesting to figure out why he had all these things. He said, number six, if I get chased by cops on foot, I will get away. But if chased by a vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. All right, well, thank you for that one. I will rob only seven months out of the year. <laughs> I don't know. You know, to Rabbit City, to go south for the winter, uh, live in the Bahamas, I have, I have no idea, but that was there. And number eight, I will enjoy robbing from the rich to give to the poor. All right, kind of this Robin Hood mentality. Well, now this thief had a sense of morality, he would say but it was twisted. 
And when he stood before the judge, you can bet that the judge did not judge him by his own code or law. He judged him by the laws of that state, the state of South Dakota. And in the same way, you know, when we stand before God, God's not going to judge us by our own sense of morality or what we thought was right or wrong. God is going to judge us by his perfect law, his perfect holiness. Partial obedience is disobedience. It's not up to us to be able to kind of pick and choose and say, you know, I like that command, but I don't like that one, or I I think I want to do this, or I don't want to do that. No, God expects us to listen and obey what he has said. The second thing we see in this text is that we can be blinded by our own sin. Look with me, if you will, in verse 12 and following. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and he went to meet Saul. You can imagine Samuel. He was crying out to the Lord all that night. He just didn't sleep. He was grieved. He was angry. And so he got up early to meet Saul, but he was told that Saul has gone to Carmel. Now, this Carmel is not the Mount Carmel in the north of Israel, but this is a smaller settlement down by Hebron in the southern part of Israel. And there, Saul has gone to set up a monument in his own honor, and he has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. Now, how was Saul blinded by his own sin? Well, one of the first things we see here is that he is setting up a monument in his own honor. Rather than giving honor to the Lord, he's thinking about his own kind of reputation and story. And this is what all the other kings did. This is what the kings of Assyria and Babylon and Egypt would do. They have these stone uh, steels that were engraved that would tell about their victories and their accomplishments. Said nothing about any defeats, but only the good stuff. You know, and they wrote that. And so here's Saul thinking, you know, well, Israel wanted a king. We want to be like all the other nations. I'm going to tell my story. And secondly, he came when he saw Samuel. He greeted Samuel with enthusiasm in verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Uh, He thought he had done everything that God had asked. He just didn't see it. He was blind to his own sin. And there's a very humorous picture, a scene that shows up here in the text as we go on. Uh, Samuel goes, then, what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And what is this lowing of the cattle that I hear? You know, here's Samuel coming in, and it's, you know, it's, you know, you're hearing the cows lowing, and it's, bah, you know, the sheep are out there, and it sounds like 4-H day at the county fair. I mean, there's animals everywhere. And Saul is just oblivious to it, doesn't see it as disobedience at all. And Saul answered, Well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Wait a minute. The Lord your God? He doesn't say the Lord our God. He says the Lord your God. Maybe a slip here in terms of what is happening in his heart and his relationship to God. And the people did it. But we totally destroyed the rest, is what he says. And Samuel says, stop. He doesn't even want to hear it. And Samuel says to Saul, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. 
Tell me, Saul replied. And Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people. The Amalekites, make war on them until you have wiped them out. Now what part of completely destroy don't you understand? You know, it's like when, when we are talking, you know, whether it's uh, where we have given instructions to our children or there's been an instruction given to us, you know, and the answer is no. Okay, what part of no don't you understand? Uh, the answer was just no. And so here is Saul. He again is, is kind of picking and choosing on this and then he exaggerates his obedience. I mean, it goes on in the text and Samuel says to him, why did you then not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And he says in verse 20, But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. And oh yeah, I brought back Agag, their king. For the first time that is mentioned now. Maybe he thought that Samuel's going to find out or see it or know. And so he mentions that as well. What's interesting about this text is that Saul exaggerates his obedience. He may have destroyed many of the Amalekites, but he did not destroy all of them. Several hundred years later, in the book of Esther, there's an interesting story about that time period in history when the war between the Amalekites and the Israelites continued. And the evil Haman there, who wanted to destroy all of the Israelites, is called an Agagite. He is an Amalekite. And his plot is to destroy all of the Jews in the Persian Empire. And the one that God raises up in addition to Esther who was there for such a time as this is her cousin Mordecai. And Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin from the very same tribe as Saul. What would have happened if Saul had fully carried out this command? There wouldn't have been this event in the book of Esther in which once again this nation tried to destroy the people of Israel. It's a sobering thing to think about how our decisions or our disobedience may have consequences generations down in the future that we are not even aware of. Our obedience likewise goes the other direction. I mean, I think of how we in our lives can pass on either a blessing or a curse to our children or our grandchildren or great-grandchildren by our prayers and our life and our decisions to choose to follow Him. Samuel makes the matter very plain to Saul in verses 22. Samuel replied to him and he said, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. To obey is better than sacrifice. It's not one or the other, though. It's not like, okay, we'll just pick one or the other to do. God wants them both. He wants us to obey, and when we obey Him, we will give Him 
of our time and our gifts and our talents, our offerings. We will do that because we love Him. He wants our heart to be right with Him most of all, and then that will show in the way that we live. And sometimes people get that confused. And it's interesting how when people drift away from God, they can still be religious. And they can still want to participate in these rituals that make them feel good in one kind of an emotional sense. Uh, They can still sometimes go to church or say a prayer or do certain acts. But the heart has left. And it means nothing if the heart is not right with God. Here's a situation in which Saul was blind to his sin. And it can happen to us too. One of the books that I read on my sabbatical was a book written by Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, called Counterfeit Gods. It was about idolatry. He talked about how, you know, in our society, we kind of think of idolatry as something that they did way back then or maybe other nations where they have the little statues and the idols. And he goes, we have all kinds of idols in our culture. We have gods of money and we have gods of power, gods of sex. We have gods of, you know, immorality in other ways. And we have all these things that we live for. An idol is anything that we think is going to make our life complete or if we had that, we'll have happiness or we'll have security or we'll have contentment. An idol is anything that then takes God's place in our life. And we kind of, you know... uh, devote our time and our energy to getting those things that we think are going to give us that ultimate happiness or meaning or joy in our life. Well, if it's anything but God, it's an idol. And sometimes greed is an idol in people's life. Tim Keller said, you know, in his 25 years of ministry or 30 years of ministry, he said, I've never had anybody come into my office, sit down with me, and confess their sin of greed. He said, I've had people confess all other kinds of sins. But we just don't see it when it comes to greed. You know, how much is enough? And we always tend to look at the person who has a little bit more than us and think, well, we're doing okay. We don't see it in our life. But God wants us to give our offerings, our gifts, our talents to Him. And how much is enough? We need to wrestle with that. Because there are times when people have sacrificed time with God and time with their family and all of this effort to have a nice home or all of the stuff, all of the things that they think are going to give meaning to life and they lost the most important things in their relationship with God and their family or their children. I have people too, and I've heard people say this, you know, like, I don't think I could ever give a tithe on my income. I mean, I'm barely having... Uh, you know, I'm barely making it now on what I have. How could I give a tithe? How could I give 10% to the Lord? And we don't see how walking with God and giving away a tithe and living on 90% is more than trying to make it on 100% on our own. God blesses and multiplies and provides in so many different ways. And He even says in His Scripture, Put me to the test. See if I won't pour out such a blessing that there will be no more need. Give to him the first fruits, not the leftovers like Saul was doing here with the weak and the lame. It's in the area of immorality can become an idol. I mean, with the issue of pornography. Uh, there are guys who say, I don't have a problem with that. I, I can stop anytime I want. And they just don't see it, that it all is immorality. It is sin. 
and you need to put it away, put it off, and take the steps of accountability or or uh, putting the computer, having a lock on it, or whatever you need to do, put it in a place where others are seeing you when you are there, um, so that you do not engage in that addictive sin. There are times when people talk about living together. Instead of listening to what God says in His Word about uh, sex before marriage, they say, well, you know, it... Uh, we just got this apartment and it's a lot cheaper to live together you know instead of having two separate places and we're just going to do that and and they disregard what God has to say about sexual immorality adultery pick and choose I can do this I don't have to do that we can be blind to our own sin and we don't see that obedience is the pathway to joy and peace and blessing in our life and in the lives of our children, our family, and generations to come. So what will we do with our sin? What will we do with our sin? Saul's response here is classic, but it is very sad. It is a response that goes all the way back to Adam. It is a response that sadly we do at times too. In verse 15, Saul blamed others. When he was confronted with uh, all of these sheep and goats and cattle and livestock that are there, you know, what does Saul say? He said, well, it's the soldiers. The soldiers, they spared the best. They were unwilling to kill them. No, Saul. You are the leader. You are responsible. Saul, this is your sin. And then he rationalizes actions in verse 15. That we were going to sacrifice them to God. You know, we were going to give them as an offering. We're, we're going to do this good thing. And so that justifies this bad thing. No, Saul. You were disobedient to what God had asked. Everything was to be fully devoted to Him. And sometimes we can do that too. We can blame others rather than admit our guilt. And we can rationalize our behavior rather than seeing it as God sees it. So Samuel comes and he confronts the Lord and we see Saul's response in verse 24. Saul said to Samuel that I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people so I gave in to them and now I beg you forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. You know, when you read this, I mean, people have debated, debated it, but it seems as though Saul's repentance was insincere. He seemed more concerned about his image and honor than God's. He wanted Samuel to go back with him to kind of save face. He was sorry for what he had done on one level, but on the other side, he's still concerned about his image. 
You know, now's not a time to be concerned about your image. Now's a time to say to the Lord, I was wrong and I have sinned. It's a lesson that we all need to learn. What should we do when we sin? Well, the scripture is very clear, and I'm going to close with these three steps. Number one, we are to confess it to God. 1 John 1, 9 says this, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Don't blame others. Don't rationalize it away. Don't excuse it. Admit it. That's what confession is. It means to say the same thing that God says about our sin, to just call it what it is. And secondly, we are to repent. We are to turn away from it. I like um, verse or Acts chapter 3, verse 19. I like what it says. It says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. God longs to give us that refreshing. God longs for us to be restored to Him in fellowship. Come. Admit your sin and quit it. Have a change in heart and mind. And then thirdly, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The only way that this works is when we allow God to work in us. The Bible says don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Allow Him to change us from the inside out. Allow Him to renew our mind as we spend time in His Word. Allow Him to change our thoughts and our desires so that we desire the things that God desires. You see, the difference between Saul and David wasn't that David did not sin. He did. But in the Scripture we see how time and time again David came back to the Lord and walked with Him. And this doesn't mean that we are never going to sin in our life. We will. But God is a God of mercy and grace. And when we turn to Him, He restores us, He forgives us our sins, and He empowers us so that we can live for Him. Is that your heart's desire? Is there anything you need to share with Him today in prayer as we close? I want to give you an opportunity to do that as I lead us in prayer. Father, as we come before you, you know those areas in our life that we struggle with. Father, help us to have the courage to admit it and quit it and to call sin what it is and to say, Lord, would you forgive me for my sin? And Father, you know that we are powerless to change ourselves. We need your Holy Spirit. And so would you fill us? Would you renew our mind? Would you use our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us and hold us accountable? Would you help us to be real and honest with one another so that we can do life together in this journey? That we can walk with you in the power of the Holy Spirit and be changed and give testimony to what you have done in our life. And Lord, as we do that in obedience, may we just in increasing measure experience your love and your joy and your peace your grace in our life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And may God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it.